Hello and welcome to Series 4 of the Igniting Change podcast. It's been another tumultuous year as we come to grips with a global pandemic and its myriad repercussions. Through it all, Igniting Change has continued to work hard to bring about positive outcomes for the unseen and unheard in our community. Our guest today is Ian Seal. Ian's the founder of the Three for All Foundation, an organisation designed to help marginalised and disadvantaged communities to meet their own needs. Ian, that's quite a, a task ahead of you. It, it is a it is a, a large ambition. We, we don't expect to have it complete by Tuesday next week or, or <laughs> anything like that. And I guess the key word is towards. We recognise that there are there are real processes involved in creating human rights change, and our part in that process is bringing communities along on the journey and ensuring that they have the voice and lead the work towards that change. Are there specific groups that you focus on, or is it? Come one, come all. It's a little bit of both, actually. So, uh, so about fifty percent of our work is targeted specifically to LGBTQI plus communities, and much of that work happens internationally in in places where that community face far more significant challenges and and concerns than than the community does here. But it also works intersectionally with with marginalised LGBTQI groups here in Australia. Uh, and then the other half of our work tends to focus either on uh, populations of children and young people or refugee and asylum seeker populations. And again, some of that is in Australia and some is international. So the refugee and asylum seeker population has a myriad problems. And I'm presuming that if they are LGBTQI+, they face a whole another layer of difficulty in accessing services and, and in just dealing with the reality of who they are. Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, they are often marginalised and experience prejudice from their own community of origin and at the same time may experience racism and other prejudices in the LGBTQI community. So even at, even at that level of where is their community and where do they feel comfortable? The spaces are often very small. And when it comes to a protection claim or you know, seeking refugee status, unfortunately, the assessment processes that many countries use really are not appropriate for people who are LGBTQI in that it expects them to um, be able to share intimate details of who they are and, and their experiences. And, and these are people who, in order to survive, have had to hide who they are. And so it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fundamental challenge to have to prove that you are the very person you've been hiding from or you know, the identity that you've been hiding from your family, your community um, and everyone around you for many years. So how do you get them to trust you? We, we've, from the earliest days, have ensured that our group here in, in Melbourne is peer-led. So it's not so much about needing to trust me, I guess, as, as trusting other LGBTQI refugees and asylum seekers themselves. We began that work. So we, we you know, had previously worked in other LGBTQI communities here in, in Victoria and so had a reputation and a profile for, for doing good work in that space. And when we began this work with people seeking asylum, we initially partnered with uh, Uniting's Asylum Seeker Welcome Centre, ran some training for them as an organisation and essentially said, if there are any LGBTQI people in your cohort who are interested in forming a group or being part of a group, uh, we're here to help and everything's really grown from there. And what's been some of the challenges that you faced during the pandemic? 
The pandemic turned absolutely everything we did before on its head, um, not, not just with this project, but in pretty much every project that we work in around the world. But for this particular activity and, and for this population, prior to the pandemic, our key role and the key support that we provided to that community was about safe spaces for social gatherings and peer support and connections to services where they could address some of their other needs and challenges. But when the pandemic hit, yeah, this is a population who are by and large in unstable, often short-term accommodation. If they had work rights and were earning an income, they were often in forms of employment that disappeared most quickly when the pandemic began. And uh, due to federal policy, they were not eligible for any form of JobKeeper or JobSeeker support. So what that meant is it, it literally took days before some of these people were in uh, severe financial distress and at risk of you know, not having safe accommodation and not being able to eat rather than, than weeks or months. And so we very quickly had to respond to that. And because we had built, built trust with a group of people who did struggle to connect and to feel safe in, in other services, we became the, the locus of a whole range of different supports at a time when other groups providing kind of social and peer support were shrinking in the, in the face of the pandemic. We, we actually grew dramatically, grew in, grew in numbers and grew in terms of the resource that we provided to that, that group. So at that point, we employed our first peer support officer from that cohort and we began to provide what material we could in all sorts of different ways, both directly ourselves and through a network of partnerships. One of those partners was Igniting Change. How did you get introduced to Igniting Change? So I've, I've known James Jusen, the founder of Igniting Change, for uh, many years in, in that we were on the, the board of the Reichstein Foundation together um, probably 15 or more years ago now and have kept in touch uh, since. But I guess particularly the, the way we reconnected through, through the needs of this group in, in the pandemic was that I, I recognise that Igniting Change is an organisation that responds quickly and flexibly to challenging situations for disadvantaged groups. So I reached out to Jane essentially with a, a cry for help um, that we, yeah, we were, we were recognising this, this was a group who were going to need material support very, very quickly. And Igniting Change was one of the, the first responders, if you like, in terms of getting back to us and saying, how can we help, which was fantastic. And what did they do to assist you and your clients? In the early months of the lockdown when, you know, for, for all of us, we, we really didn't know where things were going and how long we were going to be in this situation. Um, they provided us with some small grants that were really important in enabling us to ensure that our participants could stay connected to us and to each other. We used those small grants to ensure that people could pay for internet data access so that we could, we could stay in communication with them they could join our online social support programs and, and things like that and stay connected to other services and supports as well. So that was really crucial. And, and I, I think one of the, in hindsight, one of the things that we were able to do uh, quickly and well and, and, and with Igniting Changes support was get those connections in place so that we could stay in contact and continue to understand what the needs of the group were and also get, again, through Igniting Change, but through a whole range of other partners as well, we 
uh, essentially ask people to donate secondhand laptops or phones or tablets or anything else they had that would enable us to keep that communication happening. We found people in the group. You know, we had we had one person who was given a scholarship to study VCE, and when it went from being face to face to being online, they were attempting to study their entire VCE on their mobile phone. So, including typing essays on their on their mobile phone, um, let alone being in classes, and so. That kind of support was crucial. What sort of numbers do you have? At the end of February last year, so just before COVID um, landed on our on our shores, um, we had 28 members. We now have 104. And that growth, I believe, has largely been driven by um, the needs created from the pandemic. We've also grown our, our network of, of people who refer to us. Um, and we, we recognised that that this was a cohort that were falling through the cracks in a lot of ways. So we made a real effort to reach out to asylum seeker and refugee organisations and to LGBTQI organisations and ensure they knew about us and the work we were doing. We've also grown considerably through word of mouth. This is a population who their primary connection is often with people who are in a similar situation to themselves. Is it too early to talk about silver linings? Has there been something that's emerged out of all of this that has given you cause for hope and perhaps inspiration? That's a great question because I, I think it's it's certainly very easy still to be focusing on the challenges and the and the um, the very real constraints that this this group face in terms of safe accommodation and being able to feed themselves and all those sorts of things. So it is important to look for the silver linings. And and I think, yes, for us, there certainly are some, and they probably do relate to the fact that we were able to quickly adapt and respond to the needs of the group over time. And, And what that has meant is we're not only a much larger group than we were 18 months ago, but the peer connections are much stronger. We provided some peer support training to anyone from the group who, who wanted to be a part of reaching out and helping their peers. And so we have a really clear and strong network now of people who support each other. Uh, so they're a much, a much more resilient community, I believe, than they, than they perhaps were 18 months ago. Although obviously it's not, it's not for me to say that, but, I, but I, do, I do believe that and I see that every day. Yeah, the, the pandemic has also meant that other organisations have noticed us more and noticed our work, and that has led to you know, we we still tend to work on very small grants and and often you know, short duration grants, and we cobble them together to create something more significant. But I do I do believe that with the fantastic work of our peer support and community development worker, we've built a platform that will be able to offer much more to the group post-pandemic than we were offering pre-pandemic. So what's on your wish list? So, so we're, we're really aware that this, this is a population that is not is never going to be a population of thousands and thousands of people. And so we don't expect or, plan, or, or want to plan for having our own medical service and our own housing service and, and all of those sorts of things. But, but with that said, certainly at the moment, there's a, a very real crisis in terms of housing and accommodation. So the, the very short-term answer, if a, if a million dollars landed on our doorstep, is that we would absolutely be looking to ensure that there was safe and appropriate housing. Uh, we're all, already working with a number of housing services to ensure that they offer safe and inclusive support for this group. But we are often refused, a, a participant, some of our members are often refused accommodation, even in places that are established for the most vulnerable asylum seekers, because their gender doesn't align with the, 
the, the kind of narrow housing models that has a men's house and has a women's house and has a family house. And for many of our members, they're, they're not safe or welcoming in any of those spaces. The bigger picture, though, I guess, um, and, the, and the longer term picture is that, you know, sadly, all of the constraints that this group experience and all the prejudices and violence they experience come from decisions of governments and come from cultures that don't recognise and don't support LGBTQI people. We're also really keen to be able to grow um, an, an advocacy resource, I guess, so that we can begin to chip away at the, the very real constraints that are the problem. You know, I'm, I'm very well aware that while housing and material supports and social supports and all of those things are essential, they're essentially all addressing symptoms of a problem rather than the problem itself. Um, so to be able to work to shift our broader Australian community's understanding of asylum seekers and who they are and of LGBTQI asylum seekers in particular, that would be a, a far more positive long-term result than continuing to essentially band-aid around housing and other challenges. Can you see that happening? And if you can, what are the kinds of timeframes that you see that might happen? That's a really interesting question. I, I think because this group is at an intersection of two disadvantaged populations, the asylum seeker population and the LGBTQI population, it feels as though there are, there are essentially different timeframes in how we're, how we're progressing on, on those and, and different, different blockers, if you like, that, that slow down that, that progress. The marriage equality debate and the final legislative change in 2017 was a huge step forward for LGBTQI community in Australia in, in general, but actually I think in some ways left behind populations like this because it, this, this, this was not, you know, this, this, this didn't fit neatly with the narrative of marriage equality. And they're not visible. They're not walking around saying, they're not holding banners saying rights for us. Absolutely, yeah. and, and in fact, it's as people seeking asylum, it's actually dangerous for them to, to do so. Yeah, the, the greater challenge really for this country is around its perception towards and its treatment of people seeking asylum. And unfortunately, our, our major parties on, on either side of the, the spectrum have seemed to have backed themselves into, into corners where it makes them very difficult uh, or makes it very difficult to, to shift those kind of policies and to educate the broader Australian population about who asylum seekers are and, and, and why they're here. That feels like the longer and more challenging half of the battle, really, than the LGBTQI stuff. With that said, it's very clear that this intersection is underserved and under-recognised in asylum seeker services and policy and in LGBTQI policy. So where we can make some progress is chipping away at each of those silos and ensuring that they recognise that, that this group exists and, and have needs and have rights. Regardless of what the government says and does, what do you think the overall impression in the community is of people who seek asylum? Do you think that they are aligned with this government view that we shouldn't have them? Or, or do you think that, that we are? I mean, I like to think that we are a much more accepting society, but it's hard to gauge. Have you been able to assess that at all? I agree with you. I, I, I think that the community large um, is more progressive on this issue than either side of politics. It's just become a kind of a toxic political issue to address. Perhaps where the challenge is in terms of that broader Australian attitude being reflected in, in politics is about 
apathy or about it not being seen as a as a high profile issue it's interesting it becomes a high high profile issue when we want to talk about or when we want to scare the population in regards to international security and things like that but when it comes to recognizing the 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 real vulnerabilities of this group and and their experiences there isn't a strong narrative out there and i think that's the challenge we need to face um is how, how do we activate the broader Australian population so that they drag both sides of politics um, in, in the right direction, which again is, is what happened largely with marriage equality. It was the, the long hard work of the LGBT community to educate the broader Australian population that in the end brought both sides of politics to, to a point of change. And I think the argument, if you if you like, is not really an argument, but just to say we're all people. Just because we present or believe or do whatever, we're all human and that's all we have is each other. If we start saying no to you and no to you, then we're going to be pulling the fabric of society apart. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in this time. You know, some of our broader work with 3 for All Foundation focuses on vulnerabilities due to climate change both in terms of children and young people and, and refugee populations. And you know, it's another area where if we don't address the very clear understanding that we're all in this together and we're all human and we all, we're all vulnerable, we face some huge backward steps in terms of human rights in, in coming years and decades. I think we need to humanise uh, people's experiences and recognise that you know, when people seek asylum, they're, they're incredibly vulnerable. They're making some fairly desperate decisions to leave everything they've known um, in order to seek protection somewhere else. And those are those are huge challenges. How do you keep yourself buoyant in these times, Ian? I think in 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 these times, in the in the in these lockdown times, it's it's particularly challenging. But I I feel very, very privileged and very fortunate to to do the work I do most of the time. <laughs> there's days, there's days when it's not great, but but most of the time, the fact that I'm working with such amazing people who show such resilience through through these kinds of challenges and can still laugh and can still have a good time it's very rewarding to be a, to be a part of that and connected to that and i think for us as an organization we we're trying to work at both ends of the continuum of that direct support for individuals and the the larger broader advocacy and social change and both of those have their their highlights and their and their challenges, and so sometimes sometimes I can I can look to the look to the big picture when the small picture is really challenging, and and vice versa, really to see to see that there is genuine progress happening. What would be the one thing you'd say igniting change has taught you? I, I think the really key thing that that we've learned from igniting change, and and that's that, that's fantastic, is around garnering really diverse groups and individuals into providing support. So you know we. We, we've known for a long time that LGBTQI asylum seekers are not, you know, number one on the popularity list for, for, for philanthropic support in general and, and community support. What Igniting Change does very well is bring people to the table so that they listen and learn from our, from our group and from groups like us. And so, so it's building connections and bridges between people and groups who may not otherwise have, have any point of connection. Ian, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. I really admire the work that you're doing and I can feel that you are making a difference and that's really terrific. I wish you the best of luck and I look forward to meeting you in real life (laughs) when all of this is over. Thanks, Celia. Great to speak to you. That's it for this Igniting Change podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, 
please be sure to press subscribe to ensure you don't miss future episodes. Thanks for listening. And remember, see the person, not the label.